the Brown Girl Podcast. This show was created to elevate the voices and perspectives of dual identity South Asians around the world. Here we have conversations on topics and issues that impact our community, as well as share the stories of personal successes and the struggles that often go unsaid. My name is Julie George, and I'm your host. Hi guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. So if you've been listening for a while, you probably noticed we got some new music. Huge thank you to Ravi Ray from Ravi Ray Audio for creating some custom intro music for this podcast. I really appreciate all the work that he put into creating a final product that I really loved. So thank you, Ravi. Separately, we had a lot of really positive feedback from our last episode 19, which was about interracial relationships. And in that episode, I chatted with Disha Mazeppa, and she shares her personal journey of navigating interracial relationships and what it was like telling her Indian parents and family about her relationship with her now husband, Mike, who is Caucasian. I know a lot of people listened and shared feedback that her story and many of the sentiments she had shared resonated. So if you haven't listened, be sure to check that out. Okay, so moving on to today's episode, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Shweta Mungal. Shweta is a mom of two who started her career as a fitness coach at the age of 40. She's a certified personal trainer and loves helping women become their most confident selves. She grew up in Hyderabad, India, and currently lives in Minnesota with her husband and two teens. So I really love today's conversation with Shweta. We covered a lot of different topics, everything from her arranged marriage that she had at the age of 19, parenting in today's world, her parenting style and relationship with her kids. We talked about social media, content creation, the inevitable trolling and bullying that happens when you have a growing audience. And we also discussed starting a career in the world of fitness at the age of 40, as well as what it was like competing on stage in a bikini competition that she also did. So um, again, I love today's conversation with Shweta because she shows that it's really never too late to try something new and create a life that is your very own and one that you can look back at and feel really proud of. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. Okay, thanks. We're live. Hi, Shweta. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Hey, Julie. Thank you for having me, and it is a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, your upbringing in India, and what life was like growing up. So I'm Shweta Mangal. I am 41 years old. I live in the U.S., in Minnesota. I have a husband and two kids. My son is 17 and my daughter is 15. Yes, I grew up in India. I've, I've been an immigrant here. I've, I've moved here about 10, 10 years back. And uh, I grew up in Hyderabad, which at that time did not seem like a small town. But now that, you know, I've lived in multiple other towns, I can say that, yes, it was a smaller town. And uh, my parents are doctors. So... It, it is a pretty protected environment, I would say. Mm-hmm. So what was the kind of, what was the relationship that you had had with your, with your family, with your parents and, and your siblings? How many siblings do you have? So I'm the oldest and we are four of us. And we are a very close, close-knit family. Mm-hmm. My dad, you know, now that I think about it in the 80s and 90s, to, to have a dad say, hey, we need to know what's going on every day in each other's lives, he would make it a point to sit down and talk to us. Uh, But at the same time, he was very strict about discipline. That's his favorite word. So 
mm-hmm. even now. So, you know, we, we had very strict rules about what we could or could not do. We were not allowed to do a lot of things. Uh, we had to wake up early, no matter, like early is like seven o'clock, no matter what day and have a shower by 7.30, summer, winter, Sunday, Monday, it did not matter. Mm-hmm. And we were not allowed to go out with friends. We were not allowed to even answer the door or talk to boys or especially I think I was the oldest. So I got the brunt of most of it. Yeah. Now, I mean, later on, he wasn't as strict, but uh, he was a very hands-on dad. He did not have any friends or anything. So he was very involved in our lives as such. And um, yeah, uh, I Uh think it was now that I look back, right? At that time, I hated it, I'll be honest. But I think that kind of upbringing that discipline set me up for success sure so you got married at 19 and you had an arranged marriage correct that is correct yes did you want to get married at that age were you open to it so you know the the community I grew up in girls got married at that age so I didn't think it was anything different you know what I mean you're living in a frog like a frog in a well that's what you think and that was normal for us Uh, when I was a teenager I mean I have been a kind of a rebel in a way where I wanted to work and my dad he would say no Um, you know like you cannot work for somebody you can become a doctor or an engineer but you cannot do anything else because then you won't get married that was my community you know where if you have a job if you have a degree nobody will marry you and the biggest do all of every kind of parent even now maybe is to get their kid married so a lot of things from when I was like 13 14 years old was about getting me married I remember my my parents had this huge cupboard in their room which was my marriage cupboard so they started buying things like dining sets and bed sheets and that was like my marriage cupboard so you know five years before I got married they started getting things together and putting it in that cupboard like my mom was embroidering a sheet bed sheet for me and um so I think it was expected my my friends were getting married my cousins were getting married um, yeah. And the people who did not get married at that age struggled to find partners later on. Mm. So that was a big thing about, oh, you need to get married kind of a thing. Yeah, it's just what you did then. I mean, a couple of stats I found actually, um, over 50% of the world's marriages are arranged. And in India in particular, the estimated percentage of arranged marriage is 90%. So I was really shocked at that worldwide statistic. Like it's actually a lot more common than we think, or at least at least I thought I had no idea that it was so common even around the world, like outside India. So tell us about what the arranged marriage process was like for you. Like how did your husband get selected for you? Like, were you going to their houses? You know, were they coming to your house one by one? Tell us about what that process was like. So I would like to like start that by saying that every house has a different process. Like I have cousins uh, who had arranged marriages as well. They did not maybe have that luxury that I had in a way where, like I said, my dad was very involved in our lives. Uh, Like, so I spoke to a few of my cousins, their dads never asked them what kind of a boy you want, what you want. Mm -hmm. But my dad asked me that and I gave him a list of things I wanted in my spouse, uh, like a laundry list, really. Um, He would say, I will find your knight in shining armor. And um, so like growing up in a very Marwari traditional household, I used to visit my friends and families 
no not friends we were not allowed to visit friends but you know uh, families as such and i noticed a few things that i did not want in my spouse um so i i had cousins who were filthy rich but they did not have like let's say 5000 rupees to buy gifts for their wives so i remember talking to a cousin and he was like well you know uh, i have to ask my dad for 5000 rupees to buy a gift for my wife for her birthday and i came back home and i told my dad you know what my husband's not going to buy ask his ask his dad for money to buy me a gift so i want someone who's financially independent yeah i went to another cousin's house uh, she lived in a joint family so like you know in my community joint families are a big thing so there are people who are 10 15 20 even 50 people living together in the same home and uh, i didn't grow up in that kind of a family but i saw her and i noticed a few things like i noticed uh, she had gotten engaged and i noticed her aunt came to her and say you know why don't you cook this this way and she said sure but then another aunt came and said why don't you cook this the other way and she said sure i'm like whose advice are you going to follow and she said well you know they are going to say what they want to say i'm going to do what i want to do but for me i am not used to listening to those kind of things in a way where you know uh, especially if it's a daughter she can get away with listening to neither but if it's a daughter in law then that can create another set of problems where she's like oh she's not listening to me she's listening to so that's i didn't know that politics of that so i came back home and i said look i'm not going to marry in a joint family mm. things like that i was sure that i wanted somebody who is educated because i wanted him to be financially independent i wanted somebody who um how do i say it who respected women i wanted a teetotaler because at that time somebody who drinks drinks like you know you don't drink the, the concept of social drinking was not there if you drink that means you are drunk yeah i wanted someone who wasn't who wouldn't drink or smoke because that was a uh, non negotiable for me because i thought if he drank or smoked either i kill him or i start drinking and smoking that was the only two options that i had um i wanted someone who didn't chew tobacco chewing tobacco and it's a big thing in my community there who didn't wear their pants here you know like a lot of oh. men were there i mean it it was a stupid list who was not very hairy i mean a big list i gave to my dad about the things i wanted and also who was not more than a couple years older than me because i thought you know generation gap comes around and i don't want to be married to someone who i cannot relate to and so yeah also he should not have had a mustache so like i said a big list of things i gave to my dad and once he started kind of narrowing people down i mean we got some people saw me in some weddings or something and you know that's how things work so there's a middleman people kind of know each other do you know them or oh, there's a girl in this house or oh, there's a boy in this house maybe they'll be a good match to each other yeah. so they be similar financially as well so you know Mm-hmm. um should be similar culture of course which they should all be the same caste as well but when i was 19 people started asking for me and my my dad rejected quite a few he said well you know they don't own a house or well they have a big joint family i remember we got a proposal from one of the richest families in our town and my dad went to uh, they were a, they were jewelers and my dad went to the jewelry store next to them and i they were in a joint family i was like i'm not going to marry that and my dad was are you crazy they are so rich and they want their, their son wants to marry you and you're going to say no i said yes i am going i mean i i can't marry there but then my dad went to the store the jewelry store next to their store 
And they said, you know what, instead of marrying your daughter in their home, tie a stone to her and throw her in a well. That's that's better because your, your daughter will not be happy in that home. Mm. So I, also, you know, I don't give my mom enough credit, but she was a part of all of this as well. So she said, no, my daughter is not getting married there. And um, so then my husband is somehow he's my cousin's cousin cousin kind of a thing so somewhere some common relatives brought that arrangement to us you know he was what I was looking for he was independent he had his own job and at that time like I'm talking 22 almost 23 years ago for someone from my community to have a job is a black sheep Mm. you know you either did business or you were either a doctor or an engineer but most of the time you know you were businessmen you never worked for somebody so Somehow, my dad reached out to his dad, gave my bio data and my pictures, which his dad promptly hid somewhere and forgot about it. But my dad followed up. He went, he showed up at their home and rang the doorbell and uh, his mom opened the door. And then he said, well, I'd given a bio data and his mom said, we didn't receive anything. But they got together, they spoke, his mom came to visit me. I remember I was still in college. I was 19. I was in the final year of my graduate college. I remember coming back from on the, I was coming back from my college and my dad was standing near the gate and he was like, come here, come here, come on. It's time to wear a sari. I'm like, why should I wear a sari? He's like, you know, the boy's parents are going to come and see you. I said, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. But he said, no, you have to wear a sari. I did wear a sari. And uh-huh. she asked, questions like do you know how to paint I said no I do not know how to paint she said do you know how to sew I said I do not know how to sew she said do you know how to cook I said I can manage a little bit of cooking but I cannot like because that's what's expected right either you embroider you sew you paint that's what women do um but I I I said a little I can manage that but she liked me Uh and then the next day they said okay my son would like to meet your daughter now so we went to like a hotel lobby I went with my parents and he came with his dad and his uncle and it was at the lobby where everybody could see each other. We were sent separate to sit and talk for about 20 minutes, not see his face properly. And for some reason, I thought he's going to say no, because I, I was not very confident in how I looked. I was always compared to my younger sister uh, and my younger sister is stunning. So my mom always told, you know, when some boy comes to see her, hide the younger one, otherwise they'll marry that younger sister and they'll say no to her. So I was always like, you know, and especially I knew his family and I knew his cousin who was a cousin's cousin and they were very about looks and very good looking and things like that. And I'm like, you know, this boy is not going to say yes anyway. Yeah. So I still spoke to him. We talked about what we want from our lives. And he said, well, I want somebody who walks next to me, you know, who doesn't walk behind me. I want someone who's more modern, who's not very traditional. I, I'm going to travel with my work. So you should be able to live on your own. Um, I don't want someone who would tie me down. Uh, I might be able to take you with me, but I might have to leave you with my parents and you should be okay with that. And he asked me, what do you want from your life? I said, well, two things. Well, I want to be happy and I don't want my worry to be, what am I going to cook next? Hmm. But now that's my worry most of the days. What am I going to cook next? And he promised me that's not, but I think that's most moms can relate to that. Um, He did ask me, what's your definition of happiness? And for me at that time, I was like, okay, it made me think. I said, well, the day I die, I want to remember more happy days than unhappy days. So we kind of had a little bit of a discussion on things like that. And I noticed he had a chin dimple and I just, I, I thought that was cute. And 
he liked my attitude and I liked his chin dimple. Let's just say yeah. that. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's really refreshing to hear you describe your husband because I think there's so many stereotypes of like men from India, they're controlling, they don't want their wives to be independent, they don't want their wives to have opinions or any, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's nice to hear that, you know, you be able to dispel that from your own experience. So you're in the hotel lobby, you talk for 20 minutes, your family members, your parents, uncles are all kind of watching from 50 yards away. Uh, So after that 20 minute date, quote unquote, was that when you guys decided, okay, let's move forward? No, so you go back home. And I think what he told me later was he must have turned to look at me and I was wearing a light blue sari and I had covered it like this. And I just did, you know, I just threw the pallu like that. And he liked that is what he told me later. And we went back home. And I'll be honest, my parents never even asked me if I liked him. Uh, they thought, okay, if the guys say yes, there's a yes from her. Um, so I think when he went home, he said, she's too dark and she's too short. And, you know, that was his say, thing of saying, no, but his uncles and all were like, you know what, uh, how does it matter? She dark and short or whatever, but I don't know how he, they managed to convince him or whatever. But next day we got a phone call saying, well, our son likes your daughter. And if you are okay with it, we are okay with it. And, um, but I, I, I remember I forgot to ask him if he was a teetotaler and that was a big deal for me. And then I told my dad, but dad, I forgot to ask him, what if he drinks and he smokes? My dad said, no, he doesn't. I'm like, that's what most people say about their boys. You don't know what boys are up to because I had seen in my college, right? My friends, brothers used to kind of do a lot of things which they had no idea about. Mm -hmm. So like, you know what? I don't know. Uh, He might just do it. I don't trust that. So my dad said, you know what? When you meet him the first time, you should ask him that. I'm sure he doesn't do it. So mm-hmm. that was it. So my dad took a couple coins and went to his granddad's house. That's how, you know, you get engaged where my dad gave a gift to his granddad, like coins. And that meant that we are officially engaged. Okay. So what was the time period? Um, uh, I guess, what was the time period between when he was selected as the match and then when you got married? Three and a half months. Okay. So during those three and a half months, you were continuing to like get to know each other and go on dates and all of that. But the date for the wedding was already set. Yeah. Um, So it was like the honeymoon period before the wedding in a way that, you know, now I was pampered in my home. Uh, Every day, my dad would take me shopping in the afternoon. I had to, they had to buy me the wedding trousseau and not the quote unquote dowry. My parents-in-law never asked for dowry, but there is still an not from them, but the expectation from my parents that, you know, they had to give a jewelry, they have to give furniture. Mm-hmm. But my parents-in-law, my husband never asked for anything. Mm-hmm. My, they, you know, their thing was, if the dad wants to give to his daughter, we are not going to say no. At the end of the day, it's the dad giving to his daughter. But they did not ask for anything from their side. They didn't say, oh, we want this. No, there were no demands from their side, but still. Um, so my dad gave me 31 saris and 11 bed sheets. And I mean, the only two things my family didn't give me was a broom and a needle. I think those are the only two things you don't give, but otherwise a bucket and a jug. And you can imagine every single thing I would need, like suitcases was given. So we, I would go shopping every afternoon and uh, every evening was date night. You know, mm. we would go out to dinner, we would go out and meet friends and... Oh, it was a, it was a golden period. Yeah. So let's just say hypothetically, you know, this person's already been selected for you. You're spending those three and a month, three and a half months, as you said, like 
going on dates and getting to know each other. Let's say hypothetically, you didn't get a good feeling from this person. Do you think at the time that you would have had the freedom to say no and back out? I think yes, because it had happened, especially right when families ask for uh, dowries and all, it has happened. Uh, I also want to take a moment and say, you know, at that time, now I understand and I would not maybe take anything. I was young at that time and my, I, that was expected, but now I am embarrassed to say that, yes, my dad gave me things and I took it, you know, and I don't plan to continue the tradition with my family. And I am not in favor of that, but at that time I didn't know better Mm -hmm. just to kind of put it that way. But yes. Uh, yes and no um in a way that maybe i wouldn't say no because one of my cousins sat me down and told me that the best gift i can give my parents would be to just to just never complain about my parents in law or my husband to them no matter how much hardship i face mm-hmm. so that was brainwashed inside me in a way i thought okay i might be you know suffering from whatever it is but at the end of the day, to make my parents proud, I need to never say that I'm hurting or I'm suffering unless it comes to my life and unless someone is beating me. That was the only two, you know, kind of things that were it was accepted to say, no, this is not working. Otherwise, women were expected to adjust. Yeah. So whatever it is, right? And it was expected that your parents-in-law will, will say, your daughter is so good. She does so much work at home. Then your parents would be proud of you. So that was something that my cousin had told me. And I I held that in high regard. Now, I do not agree with that advice. But at that time, maybe I wouldn't have, but I don't know. Yeah. How would you describe the first five years of marriage for you? Like, what were the challenges that came with, you know, marrying someone that you didn't really know very well? Um, so, you know, funnily, we lived about a mile from each other Where before we got married. We are from the same caste and from the same community, but we, our families were poles apart. The way we lived, the, the our food habits, everything was very different. So the first year was still, I would say, easier because uh, we lived, we moved from Hyderabad to Punjab for some of his work. So we lived there. And then he lived on his own and I lived with my parents-in-law for about 10 months. So because, you know, I was not allowed to be where he was and uh, I lived here. So he would visit us like three or four times, uh, uh, once in three or four months. And I, I, I forgot how he looked. I'm not, I didn't remember how he looked. We didn't have this face time and things like that. And I would sit and remember, how did he look? I'm like, I don't remember how he looked. Yeah. So the first year was still easier, but then we moved, he moved me to Mumbai because he was like, Shweta, you, I don't like what you're becoming here. I need, let's, I want you to experience life. Let's move to Mumbai for two years, right? Because I want you to kind of experience more. I want you to get, meet more people. And I want you to explore a little bit more before you kind of settle down into being a housewife and a, in a more traditional role. Yeah. So, and just for, for listeners, Mumbai is like a big city, right? It's a more modern yeah. metropolitan city. Okay. Yeah. So we, we moved there and I mean, he encouraged me to, I was uh, to follow my, you know, he said, do something. So I started learning French 
because my thing was I'm going I wanted to be a mom who would be around their kids so even if I work I wanted to be able to work from home uh, so I came upon this French language translation so I thought I could be a translator and I could work from home you know you get paid by the word and you just so that was my goal so I used to go to Alliance Francaise and about three or four years I part-time I studied French to work to be a translator that never fruit but at the first I would say 10 years were hard um, I think, you know, after the first 10 years is when our marriage actually began. Mm -hmm. So now when I say I love him versus when I would tell him I loved him then, I don't think I felt even one-tenth of what I feel for him now. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. In a way, the relationship, the first 10 years were, I, I was, a, like I said, I was a rebel. I was a nutcase. If I were him, I would have left me a long time ago. Um, I'm being honest here, but... He helped me a lot in understanding people. He helped me get my priorities right. He picked me up. I mean, he supported me a lot through, he was, he's very mature. Mm -hmm. So he helped me a lot. I would say, yeah, the first 10 years were hard. After which we started kind of settling down in a little bit more, um, I won't say routine, but, you know, we start understanding each other a little bit more. We know what buttons to push and what buttons to yeah. not push and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, <clears throat> I remember seeing an Instagram reel that you had shared um, of like very lovely clips about your marriage story. So now you've been married for how many years? 22. 22 years. What would you say have been like the biggest factors to your marital success? I feel it's about respecting each other's differences, right? So I am kind of more of somebody who will always say, okay, now tell me what's going on more. I don't know, you know, how do you put it in words? Someone who confronts easily, mm -hmm. whereas he's someone who avoids confrontation. So I would always try to confront and say, no, you have to tell me what's going on because in some random book I had read that you have to go to bed after solving an issue. But, you know, that led to more issues. So I think the biggest, my learning is, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Mm -hmm. That is one big thing I've learned. And yes, to kind of respect each other's differences. Like he does not like confrontation. I like confrontation. In the, not, I, it's not like I like, but I am that person who wants to resolve issues. Whereas he's someone who needs to uh, absorb and process a little differently. Mm -hmm. So I think just uh, understanding you know, like marriage is like a dance, right? It's like, you you know, when you move back, the other person has to kind of give space. And when I, it, it's that, that thing. So understanding how to move things, I think that has been one of the biggest reasons. I, I think our marriage is successful. Don't get me wrong. We've had a lot of ups and downs, mm -hmm. but it's a choice that we still stay together. And I think that is the biggest learning I've learned. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about so you said you have two kids, two teenagers? Yeah. How old were you when you had your first child? I was 24. Um okay. my husband was like, you know, you we are not going to have kids for at least 3 years. You yourself are a child and you want a child? No. He's like you can't even close the buttons of your jeans. And at that time, I'll be honest, my family, neither neither his family, we did not have any pressure. Mm -hmm. for, from having kids from them, but the extended family, like the aunties who come and visit and all that, be like, oh, you need to have a child. And But uh, my our families never did that to us. 
but uh, he was like and i was like i need to have children now because everybody who got married with me had children i was the only person without any children and he's like no you're not going to have children now uh, you need to grow some more and i was 24 when i had my son 5 years after we got married mm. so you know you pretty much fall at the cusp of being like a millennial i think you're right on the cusp of being a millennial and and gen x how would you i'm curious how you would describe your relationships with your kids and like your parenting style and i ask this from the perspective of so i'm 31 so i'm millennial i had immigrant parents um you know and i grew up here and they didn't understand western cultures like when i was a teenager you know i couldn't really talk to my parents about quote modern issues like dating or boys or processing emotions or being sad or whatever like those kinds of conversations were completely non-existent um and so you know i always think about like when i become a parent and the relationship that i'm going to have with my kids is going to be so different to the relationship i had with my parents growing up and that's no no fault of their own they were just you know doing what they knew but i'm curious like how you would describe your parenting style and the relationship that you have with your kids in that context so i will be honest what you describe is similar to the kind of experience i had as a child as well so forget talking about boys we were not allowed to have boyfriends or we were expected to always i would never be able to talk about my emotions or boys or things like that though my mom sat me down and had the most embarrassing birds and bees conversation with me when i was about 15 16 years old oh wow my parents are doctors right so my mom was very progressive in a way like you know even before i got married um the cycle before i got married she put me on birth control can you imagine a mom putting her daughter on birth control so wow put me on birth control she said i don't want you to have children as soon as you get married because people do right 9 months after you get married plop there's a child yeah uh, so my my mom is very progressive in that way so um but yes we couldn't talk about a lot of things but i i feel that as parents we tend to give to our children what we didn't get so mm-hmm. i didn't get freedom i didn't get that thing from my parents so i I give that to my children. Now I can't compare my parenting style because I don't know how other people's parenting style versus what like a typical American parenting style is. But I would like to think that I create a space for my children uh, where I'm okay. You know, I I used to be like, oh my god, as long as they marry a gender somebody from the opposite sex, I'm happy. But now I don't even have that. I'm like, as long as they are happy, yeah, I'm happy. And I leave that space open for them to. um come and talk to me if they have you know any i always tell them uh, i'm here for you and i'm invested in your happiness your happiness means the world to me mm-hmm. and try my best to understand what you're saying so i just try to ask like listen and ask questions and talk to them about their crushes but i still feel because my kids hang out with other desi kids and maybe other asian kids they have this thing in them that it's not allowed maybe they talk amongst themselves and uh, so they have this thing that they shouldn't i don't know why uh, so they do have their reservations but yeah even when we watch tv and you know um the only thing i'm not okay with is maybe nudity especially when they watch with me i mean as long as they watch when i'm around okay with it yeah <laughs> but i i do talk openly about periods and sex and Yeah. and relationships and 
and things like that with my children. Yeah, I mean, that's so great to hear because your teenage years are so formative and either you're going to learn all of those things from the world or you could learn it from your parents. And I think it's so great that, you know, you're you're creating that space for them to explore and have open conversations. And I feel, you know, especially being uh, in a different country, I don't want to divide my children into two, right? I don't want them to feel like they have to be somebody else at home and somebody else outside. Mm-hmm. So my husband and I, we don't swear a lot, or I should say we never swear. But I saw my son using some swear words in his text. I'm like, you know what? I'm okay with you using, if that is you, feel free to use it at home as well. Because I don't want you to have two where like, oh my God, I'm not allowed to use these words at home, but maybe outside I can go and be a part 2.0 of what I am at home. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it is unfair of parents of immigrant, especially, you know, like immigrant children to expect them. I mean, even almost divide them. If I were that, I wouldn't like it. So I try to not do that to my children. Yeah. I think one of the th- one of the things that I noticed about you and like following your journey through social media is I feel like you're a really good role model for other moms. Tell us about how you prioritize taking care of yourself um, um, first while also taking care of your family. I will be honest, you know, I I am not sure I deserve being a role model because A, I do not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, like I said, it was, I knew that I'm not going to eat rotis made of gold. That is not my job. I eat two rotis in my life. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to earn some any money. I'm happy with, if my husband can provide for us to live comfortably, I'm happy with that. So there are two things. A, I was never ambitious that I don't have to prove myself to the world. Or B, I didn't want to earn so much money that I eat rotis made of gold. So that was clear in my mind. So I was like, okay, we are going to live a simple life. I want to be able to spend time at home with my children. So -hmm. when I think of close my eyes and think about what makes me happy, it's about having a balanced plate. And in that it's about, for me, it's about making sure my kids are fed. My Mm -hmm. mom was never around when I was growing up and I didn't like it. So I, you know, like I said, as parents, I feel what we do not get when we were children, we try our best to at least that the other things that I must have gotten, I take it for granted and I don't give it to my children. But my mom was never around. So I missed that tremendously. I remember when I was about seven or eight thinking, I'm never going to go home, go out and work because I need to be with my kids because I think it was Diwali or something and I'd burned my hand and my mom was not around. Mm-hmm. So, so I feel that's why I don't work. And somebody who doesn't work has more time for themselves, right? So I think in that way, yes, I had more time for myself where um, I always, for me, movement has been important. I've always prioritized exercising, even when all through my pregnancy, I I would just walk. When I had a baby, I would pick him up and walk. I would take the pram and go for a walk. I would, I, um, I just kind of, I don't know how to answer that question because I think I have the luxury of time and that's why I'm able to do a lot of the things that I do. Yeah. How did you get into the fitness and health space? Like, did you grow up in an environment where you were playing like sports and being active and those kinds of things? Uh, No, actually. My mom was a tabla player and my dad was almost a state level badminton player, but they never encouraged us to 
play sports. We were not, I mean, every summer, the first day of summer break, my dad would take us to a sports store and buy us a basketball and a badminton just to play outside. But I sucked as an athlete. Um, mm-hmm. I, I did not have any athletic skills. I was the smallest, the slowest person in my class. And um, I never thought, you know, that was not a point. But I was obsessed with being skinny. So that was a big part of why I was in the fitness world and food. It was almost like, oh, I was scared to eat because oh, I'm, I'm going to put on weight. I'm going to put on weight. So in a way, I've always been conscious of my food habits and things like that. But about seven, eight years ago, I I discovered strength training and flexible dieting and they changed my life. They changed, yes, they changed how I look, but more than that, they changed how I feel as well. Like strength training is so empowering. Mm-hmm. I used to go to the gym to, to, to maybe able to sculpt my body or to look a certain way. Now I go to the gym because I love going to the gym. I love lifting weights. I love how strong it makes me feel. And I feel not only physically, I feel emotionally and mentally as well. Strength training has helped me a lot. So I started sharing like, you know, Instagram was new then or I was new on Instagram and I would just, what do you share, right? You share pictures, selfies, workouts, videos. And a lot of moms like me reached out to me and they said, well, we find it um, inspiring. We find it, you know, how do you do this and things like that. And I decided to, I was like, maybe, you know, and this is something I should do because there were not as many people who look like me. I, I don't mean in a representative way, but in a way where, um, you know, nobody to help the people, like, you know, yeah. like people who look like me. Yeah. So I didn't think of it, oh my God, there are no brown people, there should be more brown people. That was not my idea. My idea was to help people like me who, who didn't understand who had the same struggles I did. Mm-hmm. So I just decided to learn a little bit more, get myself certified and... Finally, I found a passion. So like I said, I had the luxury of, my husband would tell me, he said, whether you have the luxury, you don't need a job, find a career you're passionate about. So, and somebody who gives you health insurance as well. But <laughs> that was his two things. But yeah, I don't have health insurance. But like I said, I have a, the luxury of finding a career I'm passionate about. And I, I really love what I'm doing. And uh, I decided to get myself certified. And, you know, like even now, even on social media, I see a lot of people who are not certified talk about fitness things and all. And I used to do that, I'll be honest. But now I almost sometimes cringe at it. Yeah. It's like someone who's not a doctor telling you how to be well or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I would share my experiences about how things work for me. But then that's not how, that's not the right way, right? You cannot share because you don't know who's following you. So you have to share about more from the scientific and evidence-based background is what I understand now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about your role at the Boss Body Revolution and and what you do there and and how you help people. So I'm a coach at the Boss Body Revolution and we uh, are a woman-owned D. Gotham Onset and woman-owned South Asian a fitness company, a small business. We mostly work with Desi women. Um, you know, I, 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 I did not resonate with this earlier because I didn't live here long, but once I moved here and I went to the gym here, so I worked with a trainer and the, I worked with a nutritionist and they literally had me stop eating 
my desi food not directly they didn't say stop eating your desi food but they'd be like oh you cannot eat like this you know you need to um maybe eat broccoli you know there's no protein here you need to eat soy and things like that so i went from one extreme to the other extreme where i gave up things so i think most uh, d had a similar experience as well so we work with desi women who who kind of have we understand right the myths that we desi women have about strength training about eating about understand the lifestyle and the expectations we understand the food so we help desi women in a way get fit now mm-hmm. uh, fitness is not one size fits all right not everybody can work out 6 days a week and eat 1500 calories that's not what it is and most women do not enter the fitness space because they think oh that is what i have to do and they think that's not for me i don't want to do it so the way i like to think of it is we help women figure out what their definition of fitness is what is it that they can commit to yeah. how can they live sust- healthy sustainable lives so that they are more active so that they are more healthy so that they take care of themselves eventually which led leads them to take care of their own families mm-hmm. and uh, i feel it helps them be happier people at the end of the day too yeah I like that you mentioned sustainable because that's so important if you want to make getting healthy and improving your your habits a long-term thing you have to find ways that are actually sustainable to your lifestyle and the foods that you enjoy eating and the kinds of exercises that you actually enjoy there's just so much information uh, you know misinformation out there on how to get fit and and how to lose weight and that creates so much confusion and so I love the work that you guys do. I think that like working one-on-one with a coach for a period of time it can be like such a great investment because it'll really set you up for the rest of your life. Um that is what I see as my role at the BBR as um you know so we are not about quick fixes right yeah. we are not about the 21 day diet or we are not going to give you a diet plan and tell you what to do we you know in a way like when a client comes to us you know yes if to lose weight we need calorie deficit but to 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 be in a calorie deficit right what things help in a calorie deficit yes getting adequate protein helps getting better sleep helps getting in you know, a water helps uh-huh. so what are is it that you can commit to what is it that you want to work with so one step at a time yeah. they say okay what is the lowest hanging fruit for you for some people it's easiest to get water okay let's work on that so we work on that build that habit and then we focus on okay now what so essentially the clients um kind of make their own path uh, sometimes we are there like you know like how when we bowl there's just this guardrail there uh, to make sure the ball is not falling in the cutter that's mm-hmm. that's the job that we do in a way where the client decides how they want to go toward through there but we kind of guide them and keep them accountable to make sure they are still hitting those balls in the end Yeah. So if someone wants to sign up for coaching, what would that process look like for them? So, you know, we they need to apply for coaching and we have a discovery team. We have two fabulous women who have been doing this job um for a few years now and they kind of interview in a way right understand what are your goals what kind of coaching would be great for you because we have a lot of different kinds of coaching which coach would be a good fit for you and at the end of the day would are you ready to commit to coaching or not mm-hmm. so and then they kind of figure out if if we are a good fit for each other and then 
they kind of onboard those people and uh, that's mm-hmm. how it works. Yeah. So once the clients come in, then they fill in some background docs and all, and we make plans for them. And that's how we start working with them. Okay. Yeah. I'll be sure to, um, you know, get some information from you after, and we can link in the show notes, how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in coaching services. Um, I wanted to also ask uh, on the topic of fitness. So you had competed in a bikini competition. Tell us about that. You know, how old were you when you competed? Like what made you want to sign up and, and what was that process like for you? So going to the gym, right? I mean, I had a lot of like friends who were bikini athletes at the gym. And I think in 2017 or something, this idea came to me that I want to compete in a bikini competition. But I never thought I would do it. You know, like one of these, oh, I want to go to the moon kind of a thing, right? I I never thought I would actually do it because I thought I wouldn't, it wouldn't be okay with our culture. Maybe my husband might not like it or maybe... I, I didn't have the guts to kind of go towards it. Mm-hmm. But in 2019, I think I spoke to my husband. It was a very casual conversation. He was sitting and having breakfast. I was making his breakfast. And I said, I wanted to compete in a bikini competition. What do you say? He said, do you do what you want to do? And okay. I, didn't, I didn't even talk about it again. And, you know, I, I talked to my coach. And uh, at that time, I, I then in 2020, I changed to a different coach. And I competed in when I was 40. And, you know, it was like my midlife crisis. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, it was a bucket list thing, right? I never thought I would do that. I never, ever, I didn't think, you know, because it's not easy competing in a bikini competition, right? Yes, mentally as well, but physically as well, it's hard to kind of work like that. And literally the food is different and it was hard. So yeah, I was 40 when I competed and um, I'm not sure I'll do it again, but Mm -hmm. I have something, a feather in my cap, like a bucket list thing. Uh, Like almost I went to the moon like that. Yes. Yeah. No, I would imagine there's a huge sense of accomplishment and satisfaction that comes from that. I mean, just so from background for listeners, because I want to make sure people really understand like what all this entails. So there's, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like there's divisions of these bodybuilding competitions that you can choose to compete from, right? There's like bikini, there's figure, physique, bodybuilding, and each type of competition has different guidelines and and expectations on how you will be judged when you get on stage. But like, I think competing on stage is, is truly like one of the hardest things you can willingly put yourself through. It just, it takes like a special mindset, like extreme amounts of discipline and consistency and dedication. Like your mind has to be so conditioned to know that it can withstand anything. And like months leading up to getting on stage, you're having to follow very strict um, protocols in order to achieve the look that you need to get on to get on stage. Like there's really, it's really something you have to go all in for. Like there's no half-assing it. It's either you're in or you're out. Um, what would you say was, what was the hardest part about it? Um, I think, you know, me not having, like, I think somebody who wants to compete should maybe take time to build that muscle mass. So, you know, me being, I used to be like what they call a skinny fat. I did not have that muscle on me. 
So my metabolism was not very high. And the day I stood on the stage, I was 97 pounds. Um, and the last two weeks, I was eating like 800 calories. And it, it took a lot from me. I had severe brain fog. Yeah. I, I just like something like laundry did not make sense to me because my mind, I just did not have enough energy for my mind to process how to kind of even laundry, you know, which I've been doing like ro like a robot for like 20 years. It did not make sense to me. So I think the hardest part was just, you know, the food. And I, I don't think I didn't enjoy that part. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? What am I trying to prove at that time? Yeah. But um yeah, I mean, I'm glad I did it, but I know in hindsight, two things I know. One, I should have waited. But the second thing is we always keep waiting for the right time and we never do things. I'm glad I just did it. And, you know, because yeah. like I said, we always keep waiting for the right time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was the support from your family during prep? Like you just said, you had so much brain fog that like even laundry didn't make sense. Um, so what I did was I... I am the main like caretaker at home, right? My husband, he works and he he follows orders. He's not like somebody who will take lead on things. So in a way, even that giving orders was not making sense to me. Yeah. So I, uh, thankfully, before all of this set in, I had someone cook meals for us. So I knew I would not be maybe have time and energy to do it. So there was there's like a Indian auntie in the in the next neighborhood and I kind of got food from her she kind of caters so I got food from her so that was taken care of otherwise when you talk about support I feel my husband and kids were really supportive I yeah. my house was messy my life was messy they never complained they understood well this is temporary and this is what she wants to do yeah. so uh, they were completely on board with that uh, the day I was going to the competition and my husband said, I said, can you bring the kids? He said, are you sure you want to, the kids to be there to see you on stage in a bikini? I'm like, yeah, I think I think it will be very empowering, especially for my daughter to see her 40-year-old mom standing on stage. Yeah. You know, I think, and he was ne not necessarily on board with it, but I bought the tickets and he brought the kids. But I think when my daughter came to, I mean, they brought flowers and candy for me after the show. She literally had tears in my in her eyes and she was like, mom, I'm so proud of you. So for me, that was a big thing. Yeah. And I think even my husband, uh, he agreed that he said, no, I think it was, a you know, because, you know, we sexualize it so much, right? Especially the bikini thing and all, but there it's just a competition. There's nothing sexual about it. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, they really... My son has written me letters about how uh, he finds, you know, me starting a business, starting work at the age that I did. He finds it very inspiring and he's very proud of me. And that makes me very happy. Yeah, that's so great to hear. Um, I'm sure that was such a great feeling to hear your kid, your, especially your daughter, see you on stage, see you, you know, all of the work and commitment and dedication from like all those months I'm sure it was very, very empowering for her too, like you mentioned. So I would, I would see pictures of like some of my, of my other friends in their bikinis and their kids standing next to them, and I'd be like, oh "My God, why will, I, why will you make a kid stand next to you?" And that is what I would think. Uh -huh. But once I competed and my kids stood next to me when I was wearing my bikini and all, I cannot tell you the feeling, the kind of, you know, the joy I felt in my heart. And now I can understand 
how they felt as well. So, yeah. 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 So you said you probably wouldn't do it again? I... I'm not sure, you know, I don't know. I get that question a lot and I don't know how to answer it. I I would rather be healthy yeah. and happy rather than chase how I want to look cool. But, you know, as a now I think of myself as an athlete, right? I'm a bikini athlete or I'm a bodybuilder. So I might do it, but I don't want to eat 800 calories ever again. Uh-huh. So the other women, like I was, I was in the master's category, which was the 40 and above category. The other women in those categories were lifting since they were 18 years old or 19 years old. And their cutting calories, which was their final week calories, were like 1,600 calories, 1,400 calories. And they were on stage at 113 pounds weight, which was like they were completely dried off, right? They had just muscles. And me standing on stage at 97 pounds eating 800 calories, I don't want to do that experience again, no. So I think if I am able to build more muscle and if I am able to kind of work a little bit more on my metabolism then maybe i yeah. will think of it but right now i'm doing what works need to needs to be done to build as mm-hmm. a sport because i love bodybuilding but um i'm not sure if i'll compete now yeah that is uh, really important to be aware of like the detrimental consequences that these kinds of competitions can have on just like your health and your metabolism and your hormones and all of that like it can really take a long time to recover from yeah, totally. Yes. So let's shift gears a little and talk about social media. Um, love the content that you share on social media. You've had a lot of growth on on social media over the last, you know, recently. I think when I when I checked this morning right before our call, you have a social media following of almost forty five thousand people. So how did that happen, and and what has that journey been like for you? creating content and having this huge audience on social media? So I think I started like post, um, I would just post random things till 2020 uh, when a friend reached out to me, like she lives in India. She's my my sister-in-law's friend. And she said, Didi, uh, you really should post more because you have it in you and we find your posts very inspiring. Uh, they're like 10 years younger than me and they're like Didi we look up to you and you should do it and I took her post seriously mm-hmm. and I said okay I'm gonna post a little bit more and I started posting more I like started creating more posts uh, but my posts were all over the place right it was about what I wanted to post so I would talk about random things and just things like that and my my social media started to grow at that time I had 1100 followers um, but I did notice that my, you know, like the follow and follow chain or whatever, my social media was starting to grow. Uh, but, you know, I feel social media, if, if you're not doing it right, can be very stressful. Mm-hmm. So it's about, you know, every time you dress up, you want your family to take a picture of you because, oh, I need to post this picture. Every time you're doing something, you want your family. to. So it, it gets very stressful for the family as well, at, at least in my experience. But then when I actually sat down and, you know, started thinking of more of myself as a content creator or, or understood what my niche is. So now I focus a lot of, on fitness. I do make a lot of content about weight loss, but it is about helping women who want to lose weight in following the easiest way to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't promote, okay, you need to be a certain size or anything like that. So I've understood my niche. I understood, okay, this is what I want to talk about it. Otherwise, I would post random things about my hikes, about my parenting journey, about my 
fitness, about any random thing that I could, it, it was in my life, right? But I understood, no, I need to have a niche, one, and learning. Second thing is, I understood I have to be consistent, right? Mm-hmm. What that means is, three to five times a week, you have to just show up, like how you show up for a job, for work, show up like that. And yes, and then be give value. That's all it is, right? Uh, it's about if I'm trying to show off, look how great I am. People don't care how great you are. If I'm able to help them, if I'm able to entertain them, if I'm able to give them some value, I think then, you know, you kind of can grow your following. You, I, I, My inbox is full of people who want to work with me. You can, you have to be relatable. And that totally changed, changed how I look at and approach social media. And out of all the hats that I have on my head, like a mom, um, a content creator, or even like a coach, or I think Instagram is my favorite hat. I feel more as myself there. I love making reels or making posts or going on. I feel that, you know, that was something that's made for me. Mm -hmm. So now I don't find it stressful. There's no, I I don't look at at every opportunity as, oh my God, this is an opportunity to create content or something. No, Mm -hmm. I kind of, I have a plan, which, which is very fluid where I don't necessarily follow the plan I make, but that's been my biggest learning. And I feel a lot of people resonate with, you know, showing up as yourself. When you show up as yourself and you're honest with what you believe in, I think that resonates with people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, anytime you put yourself out there on a public platform and especially having as much of an audience that you have on there, you become susceptible to online trolls and like bullying and things of that nature. Have you had to deal with any of that? Yeah, I mean, it's there, right? People will comment and um, like on some of my reels, they said, look at your face or, you know, like I I, I think I posted a reel about, you know, how, oh my God, I, I don't want to work out, but then I remember I have to be a hot wife or something like that. And there was a comment on there that said, oh, but then you saw your face and you decided you gave up or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, people will say whatever, I, I ignore it. Yeah. So I, I think of like when my husband came to see me, right? When we had that first meeting, my sister is like, what if he says no? And I said, you know what? There are a billion people on earth. So if yes. I expect that every single person is going to like me, I'm a fool, right? I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And if they don't like me, it's it's on them and it's their loss. So that same thought I've always carried with me. So even on social media, if people troll, I mean, I'm like, okay, that tells about them, not about me. It's them. So I never take, I've learned to not take even the praise personally. So I almost have always tried to not take criticism personally, but sometimes you let that praise go to your head, right? Um, Like if someone says something nice about you, you take screenshots and send it to your family. Look, this person said that, this person said that, you know? But then when you... When you do that, then also, then those big bats hurt as well. That's what I've realized now. So now I don't, I don't let either any good comments or any bad comments go to my head because I know who I am. I know at the end of the day, when people say either a good thing or a bad thing, it's, it's them. It's not me. Yeah. Right. I am same thing to millions of people who are watching me. Some people resonate with it and some people think it's trash. Mm-hmm. It's them. It's not I'm, I'm the same person saying the same thing. So yeah, that's what I want. Totally. I think once you can really internalize that, like people's behaviors and reactions towards you are purely a reflection of their own internal state of being. It has nothing to do with you. Like you'll, yeah. you'll be able to sleep better on, on most days. I uh, just, I guess like one 
more thing to say about online trolls. I think what really frustrates me is it's almost like when you become some kind of figure that has a lot of eyes on you or you become some kind of like public figure, it's like people think that there's not a person behind there. You know, at the end of the day, we're all the same. That person wakes up and puts their pants on the same way that you do. And they're not immune to like being a human, you know? So I, I just wish that everyone would kind of adopt that motto of if you wouldn't feel comfortable saying something to someone's face, like you shouldn't say it at all. Um, especially also, if you wouldn't like someone to say that to you, then you shouldn't say it at all. Mm-hmm. Too, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Who is someone that inspires you? Ooh, I think my husband. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is the most, I, I don't want to be as selfless as him, I'll be honest. I like my own self-centered, selfish spirit. Uh, but, you know, his his he's very open. He's very selfless he's very uh, helpful you know he would give a shirt the shirt off his back for, to you and he will never say a word i i don't think i'll ever be like that but if I, if you say who inspires you then i think it is him i mean i aspire to be like that but then again i also have mentors like d gotham mm-hmm. um she at you know she was I tell her she was five years old when I got married. Can you believe it? So she, at that age, now she's my boss. She's running a big company. And she is so smart. She is so knowledgeable. I, you know, when sometimes when I'm having difficult conversations, even with clients or something, I always kind of channel her. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, if, how would D say the same thing? How, I mean, because I am more, of a straight shooter right i would i say what i feel i i say what i think but sometimes that not that does not necessarily work in a lot of scenarios so i always put myself in her shoes and how would she deal with it and i have huge respect for her and if if you say who inspires you and who you want to be like i would say it's decon yeah Beautiful. Maybe we can have a whole separate podcast with thee. If you could leave the audience with one piece of advice, what would it be? My favorite saying is eat that blueberry. Uh, So I'll say this. Uh, My daughter used to hate blueberries. She hates blueberries. And I would always say, you know, eat that blueberry. She's like, mom, no, I don't like it. And I'd say, no, eat that blueberry. And now she loves blueberries. So I think even in life, when you're given a lot of things, like that's what I tell. When she now, when I tell her, do this, she'll be like, or try this, she'll be like, no, mom, I'm like, you know, eat that blueberry. So even I think in a way, you know, when you're given chances, when you're given opportunities, don't make up your mind and stand in your own way say, and say, no, I don't want to do this. Be it tasting food, be it going somewhere, be it stepping out of your comfort zone to things, do things that you never thought you could eat that blueberry just go and try it you never know you might end up liking it and even if you don't at least you try it right yeah Um, so I think that is my my advice to anybody who's listening eat that blueberry yeah I love that um last question how can people get in touch with you or work with you if they're interested so I am mostly on Instagram strength which is my handle uh, I think uh, an Instagram DM is the best way to reach me. Otherwise, I do have an email, but like, you know, I don't check my email. I have my email button on there. But I think the best way is Instagram DM. So 
if you need to get in touch with me, just shoot me a message and I'll get back to you. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Um, well, Shweta, thank you so much for coming on as a guest and sharing your story. I am so excited for people to hear this. I think they'll really enjoy this conversation. Thank you for having me. I mean, for me to just sit and talk about my life, it, it feels surreal, but well, thank you for inviting and kind of talking about, you know, how someone who grew up in India had an arranged marriage and found her way here yeah. um, and how her life is. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also connect with us on Instagram at thebrongrel underscore podcast and all other social media platforms listed in the show notes. Thank you again. I appreciate you being here.